sometimes I just want to be like, and I quote, damn bitch, watch a show. I watched a show. I watched this show. And then I did a bunch of academic reading so I could understand. Hello, and welcome to Shelf Love, a podcast and community that explores romantic love stories in fiction across media, time, and cultures. Shelf Love is for the curious and open-minded who joyfully question as they consume pop culture. I'm your host, Andrea Martucci, and on this episode, I'm joined by romance novelist Dame Jody Slaughter, Shelf Love's youth culture media correspondent. Jody, thank you for joining me today. I see you are out there in the field living your best life. What can you tell us about the youth? Are you kids all right? I'm not a child. I am firmly pushing 30. That's what my mother says every birthday I have. 27 years old is famously an adult. Are the kids all right? That's a complicated question. Some yes, some no. And I think we're going to get into that today because we're going to talk about a work of art that is hailed by some as the defining literary work of romantic love as viewed by millennials and or some such thing. We'll talk about it. Are you down to clown about normal people? (laughs) (laughs) I am always down to clown about Connell and Marianne, yes. Okay, good. And I know that jokes are funnier when you explain them, so I would just like to let everybody know that Jody and I have a running gag about being down to clown. Yeah. (laughs) You just really tickled me pink, bud. So, Normal People. This is a novel by Sally Rooney, who has gotten quite a lot of press as like a wonderkind of millennial novelist fame. This book was published in 2017 or 2018, and then there was a Hulu miniseries that came out in 2020, and I watched the miniseries, and I bought the book and skipped around a little bit, but I admit I did not read the book. Jody, have you watched and or read? Both, yes. I have read the novel, and I have watched the show. I did watch the show first. I hadn't heard of it before the show came out. That's what happens with adaptations is they whet the appetite of the public yeah, for the source text. Absolutely. Which does this prove or disprove certain things that we've talked about in episodes past? Like who knows? But I am one of those people who will discover the thing, watch the thing. And if I like it enough, which I did with normal people, I'll be like, let's see what that source material is looking like. And I think what's important also about doing a podcast about anything as a millennial is just like really being like very vague about your points. Like you put them out there and then you're like, does this prove or disprove this? Who could say? Who could say is the theme of the millennial, whether you're an elder or a younger. So you really want to convey in a podcast that covers very pressing topics about the impact of popular culture on like regular life is just who the fuck knows? Yeah, really there is no truth reality is subjective. Yeah. I copy and pasted the description of this book, which is pretty similar to the Hulu series from Goodreads. And I will read it now just to catch all of you up on on what we're going to talk about. So at school, by the way, this takes place in Ireland. At school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's important. Because those first two words, if you don't have that context, that it's like very UK, you're like, what? Why would it be talking like that? (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) At school, Connell and Marianne pretend not to know each other. He's popular and well-adjusted. Star of the school soccer team. I'm sorry, school football team? (laughs) (laughs) While she is lonely, proud, and intensely private, 
But when Connell comes to pick his mother up from her housekeeping job at Marianne's house, a strange and indelible connection grows between the two teenagers, one they are determined to conceal. A year later, they're both studying at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Marianne has found her feet in a new social world while Connell hangs at the sidelines, shy and uncertain. Throughout their years in college, Marianne and Connell circle one another, straying toward other people and possibilities, but always magnetically, irresistibly drawn back together. Then, as she veers into self-destruction and he begins to search for meaning elsewhere, each must confront how far they are willing to go to save the other. Sally Rooney brings her brilliant psychological acuity and perfectly spare prose to a story that explores the subtleties of class, the electricity of first love, and the complex entanglements of family and friendship. Okay, can I bring up two points about this Absolutely. that I was when you were reading? First point that I'll circle back to. I want to be clear before anybody tries to come for me. First of all, I didn't sin for you. Second of all, I'm not a fool. I know what's going on. But this reads very much like a romance novel because it's got all of my favorite fucking tropes in it, like right off the bat. So it's got, oh, popular boy, like shy girl. It's got like class difference and how interesting. It's got like high school, whatever. And then secondly, the point of like how fucking weird blurbs are and knowing what this story is, I feel like the blurb is very divorced from the feelings of this book and the feelings that it inspires and is more trope plot story focused. And the book is all feelings. And actually we say the show, excuse me. I will say the show because it also is the same. I think the adaptation is pretty damn great. But yeah, it's a thing of like how the book is sold. I'm so glad you started here because I think that just to put the context around where this conversation is happening. Shelf Love started as exclusively a romance novel podcast. And now in season three, I'm talking about love stories in pop culture. So the things we talk about here don't have to explicitly fall under the construction of the popular romance fiction genre. However, I think that talking about this particular story, the adaptation of the novel and the novel itself in the context of, is this a romance novel is actually an interesting question because as I was thinking about it, like you're entirely right. The plot elements of this story hit all the beats of a romance. And, and I think the book essentially fits the definition of a romance novel if you are very open-minded about what can fit the definition. So the classical definition that most people adhere to is that a popular romance fiction novel is primarily focused on the romantic relationship between people and it has an emotionally optimistic or emotionally satisfying ending, which is usually called the happily ever after or the happily for now. I think though, most people, their internalized understanding of what a romance novel is has a lot to do with the feelings that they yes. get in a romance novel. And it has a lot to do with that feeling of the ups and downs of this relationship ultimately ending A, in a hopeful place. And I think most people also associate certain emotional reactions over the course of the story that this book, I think, denies the reader or the viewer. That point that you made that about the book denying, I also want to point out, I love this story. I love the series. The way Sally Rooney writes, because it 
denies you these certain, like you said, that you would find in a romance novel, these certain like sort of explosion of like big feelings all mm. around. It, it's not any less satisfying, but there is something to me personally in the show where being able to see the depiction of these scenes. There's a particular scene that I talked about when the book came out briefly on Twitter, but where Connell threatens Marianne's brother because mm-hmm. he's abusive. In a romance novel, I think generally Connell would have, first of all, he'd have beaten the shit out of Marianne's brother, like to start, maybe murdered him, you know? Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. But then also, there would have been something else after that about a, that. A reckoning, maybe, of the emotional payoff of that as symbolically representing something about their relationship and or his desire for her blah 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 and there isn't I don't think that moment comes as any type of surprise in the story not to me at least but it also didn't strike me as a grand gesture in a way and I think like there are plenty of romance novels that are like bleak in like the world is bleak but I, I think that this book like leans hard into the bleakness of the character's interiority yes And I think that is the feeling that you're talking about. And like having dipped into the book briefly, like this description talked about the perfectly spare prose. Like it's very Hemingway-esque with like short declarative sentences. There's no dialogue tags. I don't get the sense that Sally Rooney's background is like as a genre reader. Like very literary. And I think that like, the main sort of stylistic difference that I think readers would pick up on if they were like popular romance fiction genre readers is the way big feelings are expressed in the language. It's said, it's there, you can interpret the emotion. And I think that the adaptation of normal people keeps that same feeling. There's a lot like loaded in looks and stuff. People aren't exploding with emotion. How much of that is... And I'm going to say the word Irish 8 million times, but how much of that is deeply cultural? I don't know, because like I used to work with a, a guy who lived in Ireland until he was 18 and was Irish. <laughs> I worked with this person every day for over a year. And if anything, my understanding of Irishness via him was much more emotional Both. and and in touch okay. with one's feelings but like the, okay. i think that's the problem with anecdotal evidence yeah it's yeah and to one. be fair that is very very possible and also i do think it's like generally unfair to like be like irish people are like this mm-hmm. like that's it's ridiculous almost as ridiculous as saying like all millennials are a particular way or all americans yeah yeah <laughs> I don't mind so much declarative statements about Americans because I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. Whatever it is you're saying. But who could say, really? Yeah, who could say? Yeah, I don't know that Sally Rooney has ever read a genre fiction novel in her life. I I feel like she was like eight years old reading Hemingway or something. (laughs) Let's just start with the end here because I want to come back to essentially, is it an emotionally satisfying ending? And does it leave you with a feeling of hope? And I think that the relationship in this story progresses over the course of the story. Is it hopeful? What do you think? I guess the question I'd ask is why does it have to be or does it have to be? Well, it doesn't have to be, but I guess particularly if we're asking, could this be emotionally satisfying or hopeful? I think for me, I found it equal parts. I don't know if I'd say satisfying. I found it to be very in line with Connell and Marianne. 
I found it to be pretty devastating as a romance reader. Mm-hmm. I specifically want to point out that I really love love stories and I love romance and they often are the same thing and they are often not at all the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually don't know if I went into watching normal people expecting like a happy ending. Here's what I will say. I got the tone of this show within the first 10 minutes. And even if I didn't know what was going to happen, I understood that this is not going like a romance. The way this show watches, it just feels different. Mm -hmm. Like even if it at the setup, you're like, oh, boy, girl, high school, that type of thing. It felt different to me. So I, I think I went into it with expectations that were like, let's just keep them low. Or in terms of happy, happily ever after type thing. For those of you, if you have not read or watched this, the gist of their relationship is in high school, Connell has the upper hand socially and Marianne is like the outcast and he wants to hide their relationship from their friends, is a shitbag about that and yeah. makes Marianne, who already has really crippling self-esteem issues because of growing up in a abusive household, yeah. makes her feel terrible about this relationship that she desperately wants. And, and he's her like one social connection. And they're essentially like friends with benefits and yeah. he won't acknowledge their relationship. They both end up going to Trinity College where all of a sudden the situation is flipped. And now Marianne, due to her higher class status and wealth, is like the popular kid. She's cool kid little difference especially among like younger millennials which I feel like maybe Connell and Marianne are supposed to be I'm not positive how old Sally Rooney is but I think she's She's around she was born in 1991 okay cool yeah so she's a little older than me and I think Connell and Marianne are maybe supposed to be around my age there's a difference among the younger millennials of being popular and being cool and they can be one and the same thing but Marianne is specifically cool and where they come from, cool and popular are the same thing. Connell was not particularly someone I would call cool. This is something that he is insecure about, but he wasn't particularly like clever or witty or interesting even within he's, his peer group. Yeah, he's not gregarious. He's not the life of the party, but he's like the person that people want around because yeah. he's like good at sports and he's smart and he has that quiet coolness you want to acquire him in your friend group as like a status symbol and marianne and her gang in college are like they're cool cool they wear like cool clothes that are like cool and obviously expensive they care so much obviously but the clothes are like i'm gonna wear some of this thing that like kind of drapes sometimes and then i'll wear tights and they have all these like interesting parties because they're rich they're mostly privileged yes absolutely they're like they're privileged people who have like parents who have whatever houses and they can throw like giant gorgeous parties and all that other and I think I think that is important like the coolness because I think Marianne it's super not explicit but has like a house in Italy and is like super wealthy like super super wealthy and it's not clear at all how extensive that is there is like an estate agent lawyer Okay, okay. She's a lawyer. Okay, my bad. (laughs) And I don't remember or know if we were ever told what her dad did, but her father is dead at the beginning of the book and then throughout. No, he comes back to life. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We didn't mention. And she's always rich because Connell is notoriously not. And his mother is the maid for Marianne's family. But you know what I mean? There's a difference between being the richest person in Sligo where they grew up and being like rich at 
Trinity in Dublin. Absolutely. And it does seem like maybe she's both somehow. Yeah. I think once they get to college, that becomes clearer. Yeah. And so they get to college. And and I think it's also important to mention that Marianne's desirability in particular is very rooted as like her whiteness and thinness. Yes. She's this little waif. So Marianne, in the book description, it's very like, she is not popular. Marianne is, is, she obviously has some like pretty crippling self-esteem issues and like plenty of anxiety and plenty of trauma. Mm -hmm. But she's also like, to be fair, a bitch. She's like snarky and even in high school, like to her teachers, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. uh, she basically calls one of her teachers in high school like an idiot or something like that because she's not paying attention in class and I feel like the gist is we're like she's not being stimulated this isn't whatever enough for her the show is obsessed with how they are both like the smartest people on earth also yeah and I will tell you I was like I wonder if this is pulled out more in the book but like in the show I was like I don't actually get the sense that they're too invigorated by their intellectual pursuits and I don't see how they're smarter than everyone else around them I I agree. That's where I think actually that like real focus on those like heavy internal feelings come in. I think there's a part that it's like they think and feel deeper than everyone else. And that's gravitating to each other. Yes. And I think that's how I it's not something that I bought necessarily. It's something that I'm like, I feel like that's the thing you're supposed to believe and understand about Connell and Marianne. And that's what's supposed to boost their a, a step above like literally everyone else they ever meet ever. So essentially what you're saying is that is the fantasy of this book. That yes, th- this book is one true pairing soulmate focused. Okay. OTP. Yes. OTP. Absolutely. Soulmate. But, absolutely. Like they were made for each other. Yes. And you know what? They fucking were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm going to come back to I took some highlights from like their first sexual encounter because I think it hits a lot of these themes. And by the way, this is where I dipped into the book because I was just curious about the contrast between the sex scenes in the show and the sex scenes in the book. I was curious, especially in sort of contrast to the way sex is portrayed in a lot of romance novels that I've read. Okay, so in college, now Marianne has the upper hand socially and Connell is um, spending a lot of time working part-time jobs and just obviously not economically well off. So his college experience is very different. He feels like an outsider. He doesn't feel like he's fitting in naturally socially or like that he has a lot in common with his peers and self-doubt. Like he is suddenly now, what is my place in the world? And Marianne is still a bag of insecurity and in a lot of ways being driven by those insecurities but like from the outside appears to be thriving and they're together briefly their inability to communicate drives them apart marianne in particular engages in a lot of borderline slash explicitly abusive relationships and we'll talk about the bdsm kink element in a bit and connell keeps having these like blah relationships with just women where you're like, we don't understand really the appeal. And by the end, they go through a bunch of shit together. And by the end, they're emotionally together finally. But then Connell is accepted into an MFA program in New York, which this is like asterisk and is going to go to New York. And he's like, you should come with me. And she's like, no, I finally found my footing here and blah, 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 blah. And I'm going to stay. But it's kind of like 
ambiguous. Are they together? Are they going to come back together in the future? Are they in a good place emotionally? And if we check back in, in some number of years, they'll be together. So that's the crux of the like, did they get their shit together so that by the end, even if they're not like engaged, getting married, they're together like metaphorically? Yeah. Do you know what kind of kills me about that? This is like an offside. MFA programs in the United States are two years, right? My understanding is most MFA programs are residency two years. There's like non-residency programs that may be longer or shorter where like you go show up for a weekend or a week and do some stuff and then go back home. But also very few of them are fully funded. So the idea that Connell, who needs this like big scholarship at Trinity to be able to afford stuff is going to go live in New York City at a what I'm going to assume right. is a non-funded MFA program and pay New York City rents when he was struggling. I had that was what the asterisk was for is I was like this does not fit with my understanding of anything. Yeah, or in like reality, no, fully. As we're going through the story of both of them, he is coming into his own as like a writer and he has to get the confidence to submit. We don't know what he writes really. I assume what short stories. Yeah. About um, his navel and the perfect whiteness of Marianne's skin. Oh my God. And then Marianne, the concept of her. Okay. You know how you have like thoughts about stuff and it, it, it's fully against your politic, but I was like, Marianne, just go with him. The concept of her finding her footing. I don't remember what she's studying in college at all. I don't remember. I, I think history. Ever, okay. I, but, but, but I had to dig for that. Yeah, like, fine. There's no emphasis on Marianne's, like, academic life. So I think her finding her footing is just, like, her becoming a little more sure of herself or at least the understanding that, like, she's, like, gonna be okay. And I'm like, you're, like, a rich white girl. You can afford to take a year to go live with your boyfriend in New York. So I believe the implication is that after the situation where her brother physically assaults her, which is slightly different, my understanding, between how that happens in the book and the show, that she finally is like, this is not okay. My understanding is the relationship in her family is as long as she puts up with the abusive dynamic, she benefits from their privilege. And as soon as she was like, hi, my brother broke my nose, then she's cut off. Because she has to move out of the apartment, the family apartment. Yeah, see, class, this is what happens when you don't do a refresher. But yes, okay, absolutely. But also, she could have still gone. Exactly. This text wants us to believe that, like, the emotional transformation that Marianne has had now has materially changed her practical existence. Yes. And that she's happy in her job and her apartment and her friends. I'm like, you have one friend. To be honest, Marianne is the type who would follow Connell anywhere and anywhere he went. And to me, I mean, obviously it's rooted in self-esteem issues, but like she is desperate to be loved and desperate to be loved by him specifically. It felt like a, a light switch of like her entire like personality and being and choices as they revolve around Connell counterpoint there though I, th- I think that's actually where you're supposed to feel hope is that she is finally making a choice yes that is saying I am enough I can do things on my own and I can love him even if he's not here Abs- absolutely I like the ending 
I like to believe that like 10 years down the line is when they finally figure it out, maybe. So weird side note, Sally Rooney wrote this short story that was published before Normal People came out that is essentially about Marianne and Connell years after the events of Normal People. And then she was like, I implied a lot of things happened in these people's relationship. I should explore that. And that was the genesis of Normal People. I don't know if they're actually supposed to be congruent worlds, but that's the story. And I read the beginning of this story. I was like, these two people are still a hot mess. They are. (laughs) Like there was nothing progressive about that relationship compared to the middle of the series, or I assume the book. And generally, I think that's where this differs from romance novel. In a romance novel, the general gist is that like there's supposed to be real progression in these characters in order for them to have their HEA. Mm-hmm. And part of me feels like normal people is more rooted in, I don't want to say the reality, because it, the reality is people do progress in order to like, you know, be together and spend their lives together. Not everyone. That's hopefully how it works for a lot of people. But for a lot of people, how it works is you fucking stay the same, like absolute fool. But like, literary there's a hundred percent the sort of, is this like modernism? Like, like the, the modernist, like re- representing reality and like the bleakness and yeah. monotony and like lack of real change in reality. Yeah. So that's definitely present here, but I've been doing a lot of reading about narrative impact. I have this book right here called Narrative Impact. Narrative. I've been reading a textbook for fun and One of the themes that really is coming up here that I think resonates with me a lot, gives me the language to talk through some of the things I've explored in other places on this podcast, is this idea that going into fiction, we as the reader, what we are looking for kind of via the journey in the text is not only being transported temporarily out of our world into another world, but transformed. So you go into the text and when you come back out, you are transformed in at least some slight way, right? Not, oh my God, I'm a different person now that I've read this book. But like you you come out with some uh, change in how you feel or think about something. And that a lot of that kind of happens through the characters where you start with the characters in a particular place and then there's like some goal that they need to accomplish. And over the course of the text, there's ups, there's downs. And then there's a conclusion where you see the person in a different place than they started hopefully having achieved the main thrust of the goal that they set out or having questioned the goal and refigured it out in some way, right? There's a progression. And I think that like the word transformation or progression or change gets interpreted a lot as like positive change or or whatever. Yeah. I, I think what is distressing about like checking with Marianne and Connell, like in their mid twenties or later and finding them, in the same sort of inability to communicate and having not grown in any way, it negates any transformation that we see happen in their relationship at the end of normal people and depresses me because I'm like, oh, you're caught in a cycle. And not only will you not like, I don't need them to magically quote unquote get better. Like it doesn't have to be a binary. I just want them to have a little bit of growth and and get a little bit farther down the path. To that I'll say, is that, yeah, that's what I want for them too as someone who loves a couple. What I'd say as someone who's thinking about just like love in general, (laughs) and I'm also not even saying that like the text does what it needs to do in terms of like 
making a reader feel like there's some type of change. The story isn't about regression. Hmm. And it does seem to be often about progression. Like you see them, like Marianne, become less completely, like soul shatteringly insecure, slightly. I mean, like focus on other people to externally validate her self-worth and having a stronger sense of self-worth kind of internally. All- her emotions whether that be pleasure or pain or happiness like she wants to export all of it <laughs> and experience all of that through the hands of someone else or like the actions of someone else and to be fair her making the decision to stay where she is is a progressive step oh i'm fine with her staying i, no. I agree that's a progressive step in, emotionally yeah but I'm also just, I, I don't know what Sally Rooney is doing because I feel like she's also one of those writers who's, which, fine, who's, this story is the story. I'm very on board with like death of the author, but like I definitely read articles where she was quoted and she definitely feels a particular way about what she's doing. I'm not going to read any quotes, but yes. <laughs> who can say? But I'm like, because I know that we were talking briefly before, not today, about the love story versus the romance of it all. Mm-hmm. And I think, I feel like to me, what I get out of this was that like, you know what I mean? Like sometimes love is like unsatisfying. Yeah. And this reminds me, so there's a chapter at the beginning of the the new Rutledge Research Companion on Romantic Love. And this is a, a chapter by David Shumway called What's Love Got to Do With It? Which is also the tagline for season three of Shelf Love. So I'm distressed at how derivative I am. It's also a Tina Turner song. That's what I was deriving from. Yeah. Wow. I'll be honest, that's probably both of our source material. Yeah, um, one. <laughs> romance and intimacy in an age of hooking up. And that's the rest of the title. And he talks explicitly about normal people in this essay, which I thought was interesting. And Eric Selinger mentioned this essay in my last episode now about unreal but not untrue. But it's like the discourse of intimacy versus the discourse of romance. And essentially the th- main thrust of the idea here is initially when romantic discourse began it was like romance was something separate from marriage and then over time like particularly around the 1950s in the western world let's say the discourse of like well you engage in marriage because you're in love and so it's like the relationship it's like pairing marriage and love and romance yeah and then the discourse moving into the discourse of intimacy versus romance essentially then instead of saying what is the nature of romantic love kind of conveying intimate moments and like what is true intimacy and I feel like you see this a lot in romance novels knowing the other person so well that they are able to do a thoughtful gesture or being completely attuned to the other person I feel like those are all very much like the the discourse of intimacy and so what David Shumway had to say about normal people is unlike the romantic fiction, her plots do not turn on whether the couple will marry or live ever after in longing. Unlike marriage fiction and the discourse of intimacy, these works have no interest in exploring how monogamous relationships work or how they might work better. Rather, they seek to explore what happens to people after marriage and relationships have lost legitimacy. The result is presented as neither utopian nor dystopian, but it does not inspire hope. End quote. Oh, interesting that last line of does not inspire hope is to me interesting because I kind of agree. I think the part of me that feels hope is the romance reader in me and writer. Mm. It's not the part of me that, cause I, you know, I see it in fucking everything and I, whatever, that's what happens. Like 
I come from fandom. My my whole thing is shipping people. It's not the part of me that like completely is divorcing love or intimacy from romance. It's the part of me that's like combining all of those things and then being like, that's why I have hope. I I think I agree with him. I don't know if I can make that. I've never, who could say? I haven't read any of Sally Rooney's other books. Another one that title I cannot remember right now, like definitely follows similar conversations with friends or conversations with friends. Like it's got affairs with professors or something like that. And I I feel like Sally Rooney is like my dramatic queen because I, I feel like she really buys into the quote that like within her work, that to love is to be tortured. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think that it's like, no matter how much these people are drawn to each other, you can never truly know or be consonant with another person, which I mean, is both true and also like, untrue. It's an incredibly, I think it's, Sally Rooney's books have certain things that are beautiful, certain things that are really like damaging, and also incredibly cynical about the idea of romantic love at its core. Yeah. Okay, so you can talk about our socialization and the cultural effects that portray marriage as being loaded with a lot of meaning and looking a particular way based on what we are exposed to in media or in our real lives or or whatever. But I feel like a lot of the cynicism about monogamous relationships focuses on things that like are the bugs, not the features of monogamous relationships. And I say this, I'm biased. I'm in a very happy and fulfilling monogamous relationship. Brag. Well, I know, but I mean, again, N of one, but I'm like, I'm pretty happy with the situation. (laughs) (laughs) Like it can work. It's not the structure that's the problem. It's perhaps people's expectations or inability to communicate or which is something that we we talk about a lot with like romance novels where I feel like a lot of romance novels the crux of it is when you can finally communicate productively with somebody about like your needs your feelings etc that things work out but I think that what a lot of this boils down to is is love enough this is very relevant because talking about the discourse of romance and and the the tying of love, romance, sexual pleasure, if that's something that you want, etc., all in one package with one person. And Mm -hmm. when you think about the expectations of marriage in particular, I think that a lot of people are like, well, you're just going to be completely in sync with this person and be able to read each other's minds. And this love and this other person is going to fulfill you completely. That's, That's like not the case. But I think it's also that like, the divorcing of marriage itself from practicality where it's like part of a successful monogamous relationship for most people who are going to like live together and merge their like practical lives can you actually live with this person can you actually see them in a bulk of time and continue to enjoy their presence that is a very practical consideration and i think that if you focus exclusively on the feelings of love as making a successful marriage i think that's where you get to this point with the cynicism of texts like this yeah of ugh, but i love this person so much but love isn't enough to sustain a marriage and it's like no shit sherlock yeah no i think it's also like really important to point out that neither marianne nor connell come from that sort of loving nuclear family background connell's mother 
is a single, I think, teenage mother. And then Marianne's, like I said, father was dead. But when he was alive, he was abusive. And Connell's upbringing was, like, loving. His mother is, like, has a, a great character, calls him on his shit. Yeah, he has a great... And also he has extended family that we see, even if briefly, that he has a good time with and that love him and that he loves. Uh, and Marianne doesn't have that at all. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely think there's... I'm trying to think of who is... If there's, like, literally any married monogamous relationships in this book and that's a very good point because i was going to say i think that like the point the dichotomy between marianne's family and connell's family situation where it's like you don't need heterosexual family unit to be happy in fact it can be really unsatisfying then compared to the like and you can in fact have a loving upbringing and be perfectly happy as we believe connell's mother is yeah. outside of like you can have a perfectly fulfilling life etc and like on the one hand i'm like yeah i mean like that's totally true too but then to your point their model is very limited by like that exposure surely some people in their lives are able to sustain this and they can look but i, I don't know i think that like in this text explicitly shies away from presenting that yeah no, absolutely and and that makes me wonder what's your angle sally yeah that makes me wonder what Sally's not necessarily I don't need to dig into what her I don't think that's it's not that I don't think it's relevant it's that Sally Rooney could come from a perfectly happy like nuclear to parent family household and still be incredibly cynical about monogamy so it's not that I don't know I'm thinking about Sally Rooney now and I'm thinking about millennial views on love and how they maybe line up with mine how they maybe don't how she seems to portray love, romance, etc. in her work. And obviously there's a cynicism, but it doesn't fe- it feels <sighs> there's something to me because I'm like dr- melodramatic and incredibly ridiculous and I've also never really like I mean I've been in love but only like once. And also I don't know it wasn't this like huge thing. But your expectation that that's what love is, that it's this big, huge thing, like that is no doubt the influence of cultural artifacts and... Absolutely. There's a part of me that like sees certain, and this is all like complete speculation. Like I do not know this woman. I've never talked to her. But there's something to me that is giving me very like a deconstructed version of a Tumblr post that is, like I said earlier, very like love is torture and that's cool and good and beautiful maybe. There's something interesting in it. Interesting. Okay. Metrically opposed to the idea of love is all powerful and love will save the world or that type of stuff. It seems to me like she's trying to give a statement on like, love can be just as important and just as powerful and not necessarily like bad in the way that we see like mafia romances where it's like, (laughs) He controls me and doesn't let me leave the house, but he, but that's because he loves me so much. But more like, God, we're all so fucked up. So love is all so fucked up too. Okay. All right. All right. So let me read this sex scene. And I would say just like the mood of the sex scenes in the show is very much like it's intimate. You feel the sexual chemistry. They're sweaty. It's yeah. not soft focus. There is flaccid penis. They're like flushed and not always sexily, like rumpled sheet. Like it's like a very natural expression. 
is important to point out. Marianne has a bush. That's important. Yes, it's Merkin, really. But it means something. I mean, that there's codes against full frontal... Fine, fair. It's either that they could have just not shown that part of her body and let us believe that she is fully bikini waxed or whatever. Brazilian waxed. But yeah, the book apparently makes a point to say that in high school she doesn't shave her legs. Yeah. But I get the sense she started shaving her legs in college. Oh, for sure. So this is the first time they have sex in the book, which is, by the way, page 22. And I I believe they have sex at the beginning of episode two in the show. Something like that. Yeah, I think. Okay. And I think this is a really important passage because I think it reinforces and or gives some points of discussion for what we've been talking about. He's talking about how, like, he had sex with a girl before Marianne, but Marianne had never had sex with anybody before. His previous experiences, he knew that there was gossip about it, and he'd had to hear his actions repeated back to him later in the locker room, his errors, and so much worse, his excruciating attempts at tenderness performed in gigantic pantomime. That excruciating attempts at tenderness really grabs hold of me. Yeah, it's like the intimacy that he tried to bring to the moment was like reduced to not only pantomime, but like to its like crudest elements where his sentimentality was like mocked. And that's all Connell. That's what he's terrified of. That his private becomes public. Yes. Which is why he loves, okay. So then he's got this secret relationship with Marianne. What does he find so fascinating about it? How very private and insular and how it is not shared with the world at all, as you will see. With Marianne, it was different because everything was between them only, even awkward or difficult things. He could do or say anything he wanted with her and no one would ever find out. It gave him a vertiginous, lightheaded feeling to think about it. When he touched her that night, she was so wet and she rolled her eyes back into her head and said, God, yes. And she was allowed to say it. No one would know. He was afraid he would come just then from touching her like that. His desire for her, that was end quote, his desire for her is entirely wrapped up in the intimacy, the privateness, the fact that he can make mistakes and nobody will know. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like hers is entirely wrapped up in, holy shit, someone wants me. Uh, yes. So then later he's describing another early moment of sexual Congress. (laughs) 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 Um, Intercourse. When they went upstairs, he didn't say anything. He let her talk. That's so good, she kept saying. So, as an aside, the verbal affirmations. That feels so good. Her body was all soft and white like flower dough. Oh, God. Can we just pause there? I... (laughs) Why? Like, I have no fucking clue. Every time, like, there's discussions about, you know, like, whiteness and romance, like... I'll come upon a phrase like this. I'm like, that was so unnecessary. It's fine that they're white people, but like. We know. White like flower dough? Like flower dough of all things. I suppose that if I look at that and think about it. More pliable. Pliable? Yeah, I guess like flower dough is not like a positive or negative thing. It's very neutral. Yeah, more like. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's supposed to be like, she's moldable. I can move her. and I don't know, whatever. Like but not that, but yeah I don't know I don't know and, and also because and like you said earlier Marianne is like very thin and Daisy Edgar Jones 
the actress or whatever she's a beautiful woman but very thin so there's no there's never any i don't know it's weird to the dough is i yeah anyway she's more like a crusty french baguette she actually really is a crusty french baguette but like uncooked not golden by the oven okay Okay. (laughs) when it's like but hard like it's been cooked (laughs) (laughs) i i think it just it's just like a very weird descriptor Okay. That feels so good. Nope, sorry, I read that. That feels so good. He seemed to fit perfectly inside her. Mmm, what does this sound like? Listen, this is, a lot of these things are very familiar. It wasn't like that with Marianne. Physically, it just felt right, and he understood why people did insane things for sexual reasons then. I've literally read that a million times in romance novels. Yeah. Oh, but why Marianne? It wasn't like she was so attractive. Some people thought she was the ugliest girl in school. As an aside, because she doesn't shave her legs. Yeah. And, like, occasionally spills yogurt on her shirt. Like, yeah. terrible. What kind of person would want to do this with her? Okay. And yet he was, and yet he was there, whatever kind of person he was doing it. She asked him if it felt good, and he pretended he didn't hear her. Solid. She was on her hands and knees, so he couldn't see her facial expressions or read into it what she was thinking. After a few seconds, she said in a much smaller voice, am I doing something wrong? He closed his eyes. No, he said, I like it. (sighs) So first of all, I want to point out by saying Connell's treatment of Marianne in the beginning, so fucked up. And his thoughts about her are so fucked up. Can we talk, though, about how this is not that different? He is so fucked up and he is so mean to her. and. Let me just acknowledge that. And I think, honestly, the way this book treats their irresistible attraction to each other, even though they don't like each other or treat each other very well throughout this book, is really bothersome, especially when then they're just so dismissive of the relationships with every other person in their lives, where everybody else is just like in their orbit and is not given humanity, in my opinion. And some of the people are really not good people. Like they make, sorry, they make red choices as I would say to my six-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> You're not good or bad. You just make green choices or red choices. <laughs> that's, honestly, that's, that's really clever. So some people in their lives make red choices. Some people in their lives just apparently have an absence of green choices. I, I feel like nothing matters to, to Connell and Marianne, but Connell and Marianne. Connell's mom yeah. matters to him. But post-high school, like, he doesn't have any friends. Like, one friend. He, who he's really dismissive of, even though his friend seems to be a much better friend to him than Connell is to his friend. Oh, yeah. Connell's not a good friend. Marianne isn't either. Yeah. Not, they're not They're not good people. They are normal people. I, okay, I get it. Like, <laughs> solid reference. But they make a lot of red choices. They make a lot of red choices. Both concerning each other and other people and themselves. And I'm okay with I'm okay with them making right choices. And I understand that everybody is at their core like self-involved, but they are assholes to other people. And yeah. like other people are admittedly assholes to them, but it's like everybody's the asshole here. They're like 18, 19, 20. Not that it's okay to be a real p- piece of shit at that age, of course, but I uh, I don't know. They're in this space where because they're also pretty much only interacting with their age mates. Except when Connell makes out with his high school teacher. Yeah. Um, We don't have to actually talk about it. I just wanted to mention Uh, it. That's a lot. There are a lot of little things. 
completely unexplored and they're like real bombs <laughs> that you're like, excuse me? But anyway, I think Marianne takes a lover when she's in Sweden or whatever. And he's maybe a few years older, maybe a decade older. Who knows? I, I don't know. He's just some random like black Swede. I don't know. But generally they're interacting with their age mates. And so I think what I got was like, they're assholes because they're young and for all the lack of privilege when it comes to money, for all the lack of the like in-house abuse, Connell's life has been fine. Yeah, I mean, he's he's still a white, intelligent, able-bodied, yes. uh, cisgender, heterosexual man. Yeah, he had a home to come to every day. There was always food. His mom, like, he was one of those kids, like, their family had a car, and the mom was like, here, you have the car. You just drive me where I need to go. What would that be like? I don't. I have no clue. And then, obviously, Marianne is rich, but an abusive household. But, you know, things are afforded to her because of her wealth or whatever. So, generally... They are two people who, while obviously they have their own like traumas, baggage, etc., have never had to not be self-involved. And I think generally, we don't know anything about the other characters really, but I assumed they were in the same boat. Everybody is stuck Every- in their own little yes myopic world. Yes, everyone so- is like very myopic. I guess just like from a relationship angle though, like this text really wants us to believe that Connell and Marianne are like faded and like they have this love story that will cross time and it doesn't matter if they're with other people. They can only look at each other in the room essentially. And that part feels like overly romanticized to me where I'm like, okay, why do you keep engaging in relationships with other people when you have absolutely no emotional connection to them as far as we can tell? That just feels like disrespectful. And I feel like the text wanted to turn every other relationship with somebody else into a villainous situation. And by the way, did you notice that every one of their love interests, almost with one exception, was a person of color? I did. Connell has a, I don't know how long they dated, whatever, long-ish term, like semi-serious relationship with an Asian woman who he... I don't understand why she stayed in that relationship at all. He's nothing to her. Yes. And did you notice that she became villainous when she broke up with him when he had depression? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Did you notice that? Like, it was truly nothing. It was someone's funeral. Like, one of Connell and Marion's classmates died. He took the girlfriend back home. (laughs) Effectively, like, sees Marianne for the first time in a while is able to interact with her and basically like pushes it like bye bitch (laughs) and and she has some feelings about that and he's like I don't know what's fucking wrong with you he's like it's Mary like don't you know it's my faded mate what's your problem (laughs) you're just here to create some temporary conflict to keep us apart okay (laughs) and then Marianne spends like a semester abroad in Sweden and she takes up with this I think he's like an artist. Yeah, a photographer or something like that. I can't believe you remembered his name. And he is like maybe biracial, but black. And he, I I don't know that it's the air that Marianne is coerced into this like kink BDSM, like sadomasochist relationship that they have. But 
it certainly wasn't anything we'd known her. I don't no, know that she had, had. Okay, so to back up, the boyfriend that she had while in college is this stuck-up asshole. Sorry, he was a white guy, actually. And the short guy jokes that they made about this guy was essentially oh. like, oh, no, Connell is, like, towering yeah. over him. He feels bad. But then they oh, make jokes at his expense. Yes, also, like, there... I think there are parts that I caught of Mary Ann where she, like, the the first time Connell meets her friends when they are in college and she still has this, like, little white man boyfriend who's a part of their group. The boyfriend, like, makes decisions for Mary Ann about what type of wine she wants. And I remember I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that because part of me was like, is this abusive? Or is this something that she enjoys that he doesn't? I think it's a little bit of both. But I think it is also deeply rooted in her lack of, like, self-esteem entirely. Yeah. And I think that his characterization is supposed to be that he is so himself cripplingly aware of being a small man, that he has, like, a Napoleon complex and has to assert his cultural dominance and knowledge by doing things like ordering for her or but it's because he's so intimidated yes. by true power yes all this to say that Marianne is not a stranger to like I guess concepts of like power imbalances within relationships and so then Marianne articulates to Connell at some point during that relationship that she has started getting into like getting slapped by him or <laughs> like rough sex type stuff it's I can't remember the details of it but she indicates that there is like some BDSM elements being incorporated in and that she asked him to do it or that he is doing it and she likes it because it's the only way she can like feel something because she doesn't feel anything when big, she's not with Connell when yeah. she's not with Connell and also their Connell and Marianne's sex is very like vanilla very yes Best sex ever. Very vanilla. There's a lot of, wow, these sex scenes are incredible. I don't think the sex scenes are bad at all. I think that the two actors have pretty fantastic chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so the sex scenes are like, they are, like you said, really intimate, like really well shot. Not bad at all. I watch them like every time I rewatch the show, I don't ever skip through the sex scenes because I like, but, and granted because they're not supposed to be, they're not like hot and titillating. Yeah, yeah. I believe that they're not meant to be titillating in the way that you, the viewer, are meant to get, like, physically titillated, but they're, like, emotionally titillating. Yes. Fair. We're watching a show. It's got to be tight. We're not getting, like, snapshots of them fucking on a Monday afternoon. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's got to be, like, tight. <laughs> um, I don't know. It always gives very, like, I never see anybody get fingered even a little bit. Yeah, he's... It, there doesn't seem to be a lot of like foreplay. Oh, it gives very, I'm just going to push inside you and we're going to thrust. And it's this big emotional moment and that's fine. But it is another element where I'm like, I, I don't know. I guess that's supposed to symbolize like with Connell, Marianne doesn't need all the extra stuff because, but it's also. Yeah, which I don't like. I don't like that. Yeah, I don't either. And, and granted, I think this is a thing we're not supposed to have answered, whether or not Marianne is actually into kink. Okay, let's talk about that because I think that the text explicitly ties it to her trauma and, yeah. and that she needs the BDSM in her relationships and craves it 
explicitly because she doesn't feel enough in these other relationships and has to bring it in through artificial means. And, and I'm not saying BDSM is artificial. What I'm saying is that is what this text positions. Yeah. And so hold on, let's go out to our listeners. I have some responses from Instagram about normal people that I can bring in here. Okay, so Charlotte Eva says that the question I asked was something like, what does normal people have to say about millennial love? And oh they said, our sex life reflects our trauma. And John Jay, who is femtrash on Twitter, as some know of them, said, this book deals a lot with love existing with growth and leaving cycles of trauma and abuse. Also the books HFN, Happy For Now, ending doesn't have a romance novel tone, if that makes sense. But so to talk about trauma specifically, and Charlotte had said, our sex life reflects our trauma. I think the text does say that. And I don't know yeah. if that's like... No, a great correlation. I don't either. I 100% agree. I I don't know. That's something I'm like still trying to like wrap my head around too. Especially seeing so many people be like, "Wow, the sex is like really great in this." And I'm like, I don't think it's bad. It's certainly not bad. But all the BDSM sex is made to be like gross and not only unromantic, but like traumatic it, it's traumatic and then there's also there is a scene more towards the end of the show where marianne and connell are both back home at the same time in sligo and they're both single and whatever so single they're like mingling single and mingling they're like chilling and they are having sex in connell's bedroom where they had sex for the first time and Connell is, I think, behind her. And she asks, she says, did she say, will you hit me or will you hurt me? Or something like that, yeah. And he, Connell's like, huh? And she repeats it. And he goes, he says something along the lines of, no, I don't think I want to do that. And she becomes incredibly humiliated and gets up and immediately leaves, like flees the scene. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene later where they like, I think he like apologizes for reacting the way he reacted, which is, which was literally just saying, no, thank you. I don't want to hit you. And I, I thought that was really interesting to have him like apologize for just like setting a boundary. And I'm trying to understand. That's why I'm like, I think their relationship, whatever, was unsure at the time. But she never asked him for anything like that before. And that's what I'm trying to be like. I don't understand. I think that it's like, on the one hand, nobody should do anything that they are not into and can enthusiastically consent to. So like, right. point one, Connell is totally fine saying, no, I'm not into that. No, thank you. And he doesn't like ridicule her for- He's not like, oh, you gross bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like still inside her, like very awkward as he is. And he's like, oh no, I don't think. Aching <laughs> tenderness. Wait, what is it? Excruciating moments of tenderness. <laughs> attempts. Excruciating yeah, attempts. Tenderness. tenderness. And yeah, she, rightfully, Marianne is fucking humiliated. Rightfully. I, I don't think it has to be rightfully if they are in a intimate, respectful relationship. Like they have such a long standing. Yeah, I would be. And it wouldn't be his fault. It's not like Con yeah. Connell's bad. I just understand why she's humiliated to have asked for something like that. And and I feel like she's embarrassed because she's like, fuck, I'm like a weird freak person. 
I think that what is problematic about the way this text handles BDSM in sexual relationships is that it equates it with A, something that people who have trauma histories yeah. find particularly compelling. And like the thing is, is like, I don't know if this is true or not. Like I'm not a therapist. Maybe this is something that happens, but it pathologizes wanting to engage in sadomasochism as yeah. something deviant and something that is an indicator of harmful feelings of self-worth. Self-harm, yeah. It's, first of all, it's Marianne using kink as self-harm. Which and maybe there's a correlation there. Like, I do not know. I think you can use anything as self-harm if you, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no real care when it comes to kink in this. There's no, I don't even know if there's basic, like, understanding of, like, what it means to engage in I sort think of. E.L. James did a little bit more research on BDSM and kink than Sally really did. Probably, she probably did. And now. That's not saying much. Is, and I don't want to put stuff on Sally Rooney. Jody, we can only take what is in the text. We can only take what we have been yeah. given. We can only take what we've been given. What I'll say as a millennial is that, as a younger millennial rather, I don't know when you were introduced to kink and BDSM in a way that was not, ooh, these people have whips and chains, like in a way that was like, oh, this is a thing that people do, just people, everyday people, mm -hmm. and not some sort of, this is a deviant, wild counterculture thing. I know that I was probably pretty young because I was destroyed by the internet. <laughs> But I also think that... Hold on, I have an answer. It was 2012. It was Kara McKenna and Tamsin Parker. Oh, really? Yeah, Kara McKenna in particular had a book, was it like After Hours? Where it was not a red room of pain. It was like, Absolutely. here are two people working workaday jobs and they just introduce a little bit of BDSM elements into their relationship, yeah. very communication, blah, 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 blah. And Tamsin Parker's, was it like True North series or something like that? I was a beta reader before it was published. And in in her, her books, it was, it's much more like explicit, like they go to a place and they engage like more like the contract elements of it. But two very much like well-researched understanding sort of the psychological dynamics of it yeah. and understanding it not as an abusive dynamic and or being wrapped up in the props of it. Yeah. Yes. I agree. I've read uh, Craving Flight by Tamsin Parker. It's incredible. It's a kink, like BDSM romance, and I really love it. But anyway, it's like a short, really lovely read. But yeah, so I was like, I there there is something that comes with being introduced to a thing like pretty young before you are able to have an actual keen understanding of what it is and then also having it be slightly casual it just being in fan fictions that I read or talking about it with people on tumblr or talking about it with people like in real life there's a certain level of casualness I think that could come with like being a younger millennial raised in like the internet age and post tumblr yes uh, millennial what we'll call you yes a post tumblr millennial and i think that can affect the way you approach kink and bdsm part of me feels like 
that's an attitude along with the concept of just the incredible misunderstanding and the attribution to like kink and trauma and like fucked up people do this that type of thing along with that there's just a casualness of this is something you were just trying out everybody's just trying this is where maybe like the irish part may be a little bit more relevant i grew up catholic and while connell and marianne are not explicitly religious they go to church and i assumed it was catholic catholicism at least in my experience is like real big on feeling guilt about pleasure yeah the self-flagellation of it all exactly yes the self-flagellation i don't know if like culturally there's sort of like catholicism influenced mindset that is maybe not as open-minded about bdsm being part of a healthy sexual diet yeah (laughs) i think there's also like an element there of people who choose to engage in sexual relationships that have elements of bdsm or you can have non-sexual relationships that have elements of bdsm people who choose to do that and who enjoy it and are using healthy practices of consent and all of those things everybody's enthusiastically into what is happening like awesome i think that we have to recognize also that there are some people as bdsm has infiltrated our common lexicon of things that are like part of the repertoire i think it's also like okay to acknowledge that sometimes it is introduced without people's enthusiastic consent and it just becomes like another thing that in particular people with marginalized identities are coerced into by it being an expectation for the other person's benefit. I think 100% that's true. Yeah, it could be, I think, generally a very intimate thing, whether sex is involved or not. And people are coerced into all different types of like intimate settings. And I don't think this is any different. I think denying that it can be a perfect, like a breeding ground for all types of like, manipulative abusive people to manipulate and abuse vulnerable people I think it's irresponsible to just say that it's the one place on earth where somehow none of that exists it's a bug of BDSM not a feature and it's actually really more tied to like our general cultural existence where yeah certain things are normalized particularly based on like gender roles or you know identity where relationships can be coercive so yes not unique to anything in particular. So to wrap things up, so Diana Falar commented on Instagram. Hi, Diana. Oh my God, right. There are pictures of Jody and Diana from our boat cruise. Touching her beautiful pregnant belly. She had and a now baby. Her beautiful pregnant belly is a it's a sweet little baby. She said, never has a book so fully captured how I felt as a teen slash young adult. Diana, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's why I love this so much. This concept of, it's just like young people fucking angst in love. Young people angst in love. Are they in love? Yes. They're fucked up in love. I don't love using the word pure, but for lack of a better term. It's not a love that is healthy. It's not a love that is even necessarily good. It's not a love that serves either of them. But I think they are... But what it's is love? Jody? Hard. what is love? <laughs> but a secondhand hurt. emotion. <laughs> Who's to say? But I tend to buck up at the idea of love being good only. If that makes sense. 
And I understand the counterpoint that like, if it's not, then it isn't love. Love is an action in the words of the immortal bell hooks. Okay. Fair. Yes. Love is an action. Love is an action. And do Marianne and Connell prove love via their actions? Well, maybe we can say, I think love is an action, but what happens when you are a person who is deeply, deeply flawed, deeply traumatized, excruciatingly self-aware to the point where it's like, yikes, babe, (laughs) calm down a bit. I feel like in romance novel world, love, especially if we're talking about intimacy, true intimacy, it's about validating the self and the other through kind of like, I see you completely. I recognize you. I see you and I appreciate, and maybe there are, are red choices that are made there, but through it all, I see and respect and appreciate your individuality. And I, and I don't want you to change. That's this necessarily and not because I think either of them wants the other person to change I think their whatever their feelings of love are is is very small and it's very self-involved and it is very it's less of a I see you and more of a you see me I believe that you see me and no one else sees me and that's the why and the how of the love here what is so interesting about that, I agree with you completely. And as I was saying, the like the ICU, I think that they see the other, but not how the other sees themselves. Yes. And also that their complete inability for most of the story to at all step outside of their own experience and interpret what the other is experiencing, honestly, to me, makes me feel like it is a mirage that they see each other and they believe that they see each other and that they are seen, but they don't at all. And that's why, in my opinion, it is not love. I think that they like reach a point at the end where they are in love, but I don't think they are until that point. It's not that I don't agree. I don't. (sighs) I don't know. I think it's pretty obvious. I don't want you to leave. I don't find it obvious what you want. Yeah. They have no idea. The way I feel like what love is, is I think what you're describing to me is what love should be, what it needs to be in order for it to be good and healthy and respectful and not to me the way it actually presents a lot of the time and in this narrative, which is I don't think you can love someone thoroughly or well or even like unselfishly outside of the way you are describing love. No, but I think that you can love someone for utterly selfish reasons. Because like I said, to me, I don't know, maybe it's just because I feel like there's types of love that aren't good. And this is making me think that like, if what we're hearing from you and Deanna Falar at least, is that this has really captured how you felt as a teen or young adult, like maybe specifically around romantic relationships, maybe that is actually the thing, is there's this like immature understanding of love, perhaps because of youth because of our own traumas because of the cultural generational moment that we're in etc where there is that extreme desire to be seen but your own shit keeps you from fully being able to see or be seen and and maybe that's the journey that they get to maybe that's the transformation is shifting from like that i think i really love you and i'm really drawn to you and we have awesome sexual chemistry 
into like, but actually love is not necessarily all those things. It's truly being able to hear what the other person is saying and see them for their needs. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, yes. Yes. I think we just cracked that nut wide open. Do you think we, I, I, I feel like maybe that nut busted all over our computer screen. In, in summation, I love normal people for a depiction of like two fucked up kids just vibing. <laughs> it, it's a vibe. No good feelings, just vibes. That broken teacup, tights, Italian countryside. You know what I mean? It's just a ride of, to me, what it is to love when you're fucking 17, 18 years old, which is to say, you yeah. don't know yourself. You don't know. You don't know anything. You know, we were talking earlier about like how Connell, when they're 17 in high school, and he's kind of like, I don't even know why I like her. She's not the prettiest, but I just feel, oh, it's just, and I can be myself with her. And I was like, yeah, well, dang, that is the theme of almost every romance novel. Yes. I, I think in particular, according to gender stereotypes, women feel the need to be the most physically attractive. And I think that romance novels, a lot of them work really hard to be like, you can be appreciated even if you do not fall into like hegemonic beauty standards. I think they do that less so for uh, men. I think that if you think about that, like a lot of romance novels have a construction of like, I'm really into you, I'm really attracted to you, I'm really sexually attracted to you, but I don't like you that much. And having to like get through that journey of, even if they do like the person at the beginning, seeing them more completely and being able to understand their needs. Yeah, that's real light. Do you know how many people are like, are like, we're deeply in love, but can't fucking, I love that woman my whole life. My grandfather is still alive to this day. <laughs> what a weird way to say that. <laughs> what an absolutely bizarre Still alive to this day. <laughs> My grandfather is 82 years old and he's still alive. And my grandmother died when I was 16 years old. That's 11 years ago. They were both each other's second marriage. And my grandfather, like, I mean, you know, he's not dating. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Gotta, he should get on, uh, what's that app? Tinder? The other one. Married well, pretend like they don't know the apps. We don't know that we don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Pretty young thing. I got news for you. That's all over Tinder. What? Married couples trying to fuck you. It's like the baddie in a video game. You have to defeat the final <laughs> boss to move on level. Is like some woman and her absolutely disgusting looking husband. Not that that's you and your husband. You're both. You're. They're a beautiful couple. You guys. We are truly um, very sexually desirable. Also, no, but yeah, people fucking do not like each other, man. Oh, I totally agree. Like but this is a uh, fantasy. Fiction is fantasy. I don't know that. I don't know that's true. This is book a is a fantasy. Is it? It's a bleak fantasy. I don't know if I looked at it as fantasy. Let me make my argument. Then you can tear it apart. Okay. It is a fantasy of finding somebody who you have that connection with from the beginning that when you are in the room together, you can't look at anybody else. And that you're solely focused on each other. And then I think a fantasy of overcoming your shit to be able to maybe move forward with that person. Maybe. Okay, okay go ahead. I feel like, so I understand what you're saying about the fantasy of the faded mates aspect. The way I'm like thinking about it now is that like, you know how you feel when you have a crush? Totally. All it's the like, time. 
it's like they took that married people guys let's we need to get them off the face of the planet if, if you take that feeling that you have a crush and you're like oh my god nobody knows me like them but you're like this love this is love that's what this is it's like the feeling of having a crush where you're full on leaning into your delusions like i have a crush on richard armitage that one i have a crush on john bernthal and i'm like are you serious are you serious who is this john bernthal Bernthal, are you fucking serious? Andrea is, and if she takes this out, she's fake. If she cuts this part out, she's a fake and a phony. <laughs> the thing about Andrea is that, you know how you like go to a dinner party and there's like a perfectly lovely person, but you're all like, so anyway, the season finale of Succession, how is that? And they're just sitting there. They're like lovely. They're not trying to reroute the conversation. But you look at them and they're just kind of like, I don't really watch TV. I just read textbooks. And you're like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And it is cool, but it's like, damn, bitch, watch a show. This has been discussed before. Like, the problem with what you just said, Jody, is that the entire time you said it, I was like, yeah, I'm awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that sounds like a cool person. The thing is, you are. You are, right? You are, because she's not, like, pretentious about it. Like, I know people, that guy who's, I don't have a TV. All I have is a fucking record player and my vinyls, and that's how I get, she's not that guy. But sometimes I just, I just want to be like, and I quote, damn, bitch, watch a show. I watched a show. I watched this show. And then I did a bunch of academic reading so I could understand. Look, it has been well-trod territory on this podcast that I do not actually know how to have fun and pleasure is hard for me. I'm working on it. But like, also I want to acknowledge that just like maybe the things that I find pleasure in are weird to other people and I'm okay with that. Fair enough, fair enough. I love it. No one's really quite like you and that's exactly why you found the Connell to your Marianne. I did. <laughs> so Dame Jody Slaughter, thank you so much for coming to this episode to share your perspective as Shelf Love's youth culture media correspondent. We look forward to having you return to Shelf Love in the future to share your insights from the lower rungs of the millennial generation. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All I have to say is thank you so much for having me on to say mm, next to nothing. Who could say? Saying that I have insight is <laughs> hilarious. But like, I'm always down to clown. I'm always down to come and talk about goofy shit while you read the textbooks and you're like, here's this like incredible academic quote. And I'm like, but the vibes are immaculate. And that's why it's good. That's the only reason it's good. The vibes are immaculate. So I look forward to it. And you're the yin to my yang. Like I need somebody who will pay more attention to the vibes so that this podcast is not a complete downer with me just reading from textbooks and also Jody is gonna be returning on a regular basis I'm saying that like as if that has not already happened that Jody has returned I'm- on a regular Jody's gonna return she's a regular correspondent on shelf love now the salary is zero dollars but I pay her in vibes I get paid in vibes I'm a millennial I am all about the vibes I want that cold hard cash mm-hmm. I'm gonna write you an endorsement on your LinkedIn page to assume I have a LinkedIn <laughs> Both of you to assume I have a career that requires 
getting a LinkedIn. Next up on Shelf Love, we'll talk about LinkedIn pages and how you can optimize them for your career in capitalism. Like those little articles, ladies. Speaking of your career, how can people seek out your work in other venues? So you can go to jodyslaughter.com where you can find all four of my currently released romance novels. They are all indie published. And then this summer, on July 12th, 2022, my first traditionally published contemporary romance novel will be released. It's fun. It's flirty. It's real sad. It's angsty. There's an opportunity to say fun, flirty, and dirty. Oh, that's true. Rhyming's like past eight. Elder millennial generational trait. Andrea is an elder statesman of... (laughs) Yeah, and also you can find me on Instagram at Jody underscore Slaughter. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Jody Slaughter. It's just vibes, 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 vibes. And that's Jody with an I-E. Yes, Jody, J-O-D-I-E, Slaughter spelled. Like you're going to kill someone. Yeah. Thanks for being here and looking forward to having you back soon. And I'm dreading it. (laughs) Nice. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app or tell a friend. Check out shelflovepodcast.com for transcripts and other resources. If you want to join the conversation about the topics that we discuss on Shelf Love, I'd encourage you to check out Shelf Love's Patreon at patreon.com slash shelflove. Thank you to Shelf Love's $20 a month supporters, Gail, Copper Dog Books, Frederick Smith, and John Jacobson. See your name listed as a Patreon supporter on the Shelf Love website if you join at any level. That's patreon.com slash shelf love. That's all for today. Thanks so much. Bye.